to One Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. And for more information, please visit us on the web at onechurch.net. you grab it and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. If you're wondering what the table is here, I'll share with you in a minute. Um, But Luke chapter 19, we are in a series uh, that we started last week that we are calling Come and See. And uh, we are talking about uh, the attractive power of life in the kingdom. You know, people, everybody wants uh, attraction to be attractive. Uh, companies want, uh, you know, they pay millions of dollars to marketing firms uh, to help them to draw people towards their, their products. Everybody wants attraction. And uh, we really believe this, that the most attractive person in the whole world uh, is Jesus. And uh, that as followers of Jesus, that we should be an attractive community, that the life of Jesus uh, should be flowing through us and, and, and just radiating from us, and that it should draw people in, right? We're not talking about just physical beauty, we're talking about spiritual beauty, something in us that draws people. Uh, in a world that's filled with anxiety, that there would be some peace in us. In, in a world that is, um, that, that is riddled with depression, that there would be some joy in our hearts. Amen? And, um, and so that's what we're talking about. What does it mean to become that attractive community? And we're looking at stories of people that were drawn to Jesus, and what does that mean for us as followers of Jesus? And so uh, let's just pray, and then we're going to get into the Word. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are here today. Even as we were already singing, God, we just thank you. You're here. Holy Spirit, we uh, welcome you. We recognize you. We ask that you would just speak to us now, even as we go to your word, Father. We pray that, that you would pierce through every resistance, every uh, hardness in our hearts, and God, help us to see Jesus afresh, to be drawn to Jesus today, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 19, and uh, this is a familiar story to uh, probably most of us. If, if you grew up in church, you grew up in Sunday school, you've probably heard this story uh, at one point in time. It's the story of Zacchaeus. Who remembers the story Zacchaeus was? A wee little man? Yep, you got it. Okay. So we're going to read that, and it says this in, in verse 1, Luke 19, verse 1, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and he sought to see who Jesus was. I love that statement. He sought to see who Jesus was. He wanted to see Jesus. You know, I I believe that there are people like that in our world today. I, I believe there's people that perhaps they've seen religion Perhaps they've, they've been exposed to, uh, you know, things done in the name of Jesus, but they have not seen Jesus. And it says he wanted to see him. And so he ran ahead and he climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, it was almost like it was set up, this appointed place, he looked up and he saw him. Can you imagine that moment when Zacchaeus' eyes met the eyes of Jesus? Can you imagine that feeling? Uh, you know, have you ever been caught looking at somebody? They see you and you kind of look away. That's what was happening here. Zacchaeus was looking and all of a sudden Jesus looks up at him. And 
Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained. This is the religious people. They all complained, saying, he has gone to be the guest with a man who is a sinner. I, I don't know if if you've ever experienced this before, but religious people are the most critical people in all the world. Have you ever seen that? Uh, they, they hear religious people are criticizing God for going too far. God, you're hanging out with the wrong people. And um, so they, they complain, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner, as if he could hang out with anybody else, right? Like it was for Jesus, it was either hang out with sinners or party of one, right? And then Zacchaeus, stood, uh, when he saw it, they all complained and said, he's gone to be the guest of the man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, listen to this, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. Or in other words, he's a man of faith. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I love that phrase, that closing line, the son of man, Jesus referring to himself. He says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Last week, we looked at the story of the woman at the well and this transformation that happened in her life through a conversation with Jesus. She had this encounter with Jesus, a, a conversation with Jesus that changed her life, and by the end of the story, her whole town is coming out to meet Jesus, to see who this man is. And here in Luke chapter 19, just a few chapters later, we find another incredible story of transformation, another incredible story of a life that is totally transformed. You see, we read uh, that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and we think, well, he kind of worked for the IRS, which maybe we don't like, but we don't think of that as like a particularly terrible person. But if you understand the, the social structure of that time, you would know that basically to be a tax collector was to be a person who would extort others, who would be violent towards others. Basically, he was an organized crime boss. And, uh, and perhaps the, the least likely person that we would think would welcome Jesus in but here he welcomes him in, and there's a total transformation. And I, I want you to notice the word that Jesus used. He said to him, today salvation has come to this house. You see, that is important for all of us to understand that the work that Jesus came to do was not just a, a, an improvement or a renovation. It was a salvation. Salvation. That word in the original language is soteria, which means to be delivered out of. The idea is someone that was in slavery, in bondage, that was unable to help themselves, and they have been set free and brought out of slavery. That is salvation. 
And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. You see, it's important for us to understand that in the world we live in today, the greatest need of mankind is salvation. You see, if man just needed some, uh, some, some encouragement, God would have sent a life coach. If man's ultimate problem was a financial problem and he just needed to be lifted out of poverty, God would have sent an economist. If man's ultimate problem was a lack of education and he just needed some more education and training to lift him up out of his circumstance, God would have sent an educator. If the the greatest problem of humanity was a political problem, God would have sent a politician. But God did not send just a politician or just a life coach or just an educator. He sent a Savior. You see, the ultimate problem of mankind, although those are all fruits of the problem, the root of the problem, the heart of the problem of humanity is the heart of humanity. The lostness of humanity The reality is that you can fix all of the fruit of the problem, but you're only playing whack-a-mole, never dealing with the root of the problem. I don't know if you saw recently the young girl from Sweden, Greta Thunberg, who spoke to the UN and gave them a piece of her mind. And uh, in all that she said, there was one line that stuck with me above everything else. And she said this, she says, I don't, I, I don't believe that you understand the problem because if you understood the problem and you're not acting on it, then that would mean that you're evil. And regardless of your perspective, political perspective, uh, you know, environmental perspective, I'll leave that to some other people. Here is the issue, ultimately, the heart of the problem is the evil condition of man's hearts. You see, the ultimate problem that drives greed, that drives uh, a lack of care for other people is the heart of humanity. And how many of you know, if you can change the laws, but it's like putting the cookies in a different place, your kids will still find them, right? There's something in them that is drawn to it. And Jesus was saying this, I've not come just to deal with the external problems, although those things are important, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And notice what happens immediately, Zacchaeus stands up and he says, Lord, notice that language, Lord, Lord, you are, Jesus is Lord. That's the confession of faith. He says, Lord, If I've taken anything from anyone, I'm going to restore fourfold, and and I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. Now, there's no record that Jesus told him that he had to do that. There was no external thing that was imposing that on him. What was it? It was a transformed heart. And out of that transformed heart, there was a financial transformation. There was a a personal transformation. There was a social transformation, but it started with a heart transformation. Only Jesus can bring a heart transformation because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, man, those guys sure are pumped up. 
that guy that came up after worship, he's like super pumped up. What's going on? Well, if you understood what it means to be saved, if you understood what it means, is that my mom's phone that's talking? <laughs> big, big entrance. If you understand, see, there's lost. That's it. She's, the, some of you are lost, and you need the directions today. And Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. And, um, but Jesus' mission was not just to, to give people good life advice. It was to bring salvation, to bring a transformation. And Jesus says his mission in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. How did that happen, though? What did Jesus actually do that brought this transformation? What happened in this story? Here's what I, I want you to see. What happened in the story, we don't know if Jesus gave, well, actually, we know that Jesus didn't give, give uh, Zacchaeus the Romans road because that wasn't invented yet. He didn't read him four spiritual laws or some other, um, you know, formula to bring him to salvation. What we do know, and I actually think that, that the, the author, Luke, is intentional to not tell us what happened in that moment because he wanted us to see that what Jesus did, what brought the transformation is that Jesus sat down with Zacchaeus over a meal. He sat at the table. They were having dinner together. They were eating together and at some point in the conversation, I'm going to move this to the front so I don't turn it off. At some point in the conversation, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly when, but the life of Jesus was imparted into Zacchaeus. And at some point in that conversation, Zacchaeus stands up and said, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. Lord, you have changed my life. But it happened at the table. It happened at the table, and I know this may seem like an underwhelming, overly simplistic message, but here's what I want you to understand is that Jesus understood the significance of the table. He understood the significance of the table. You see, Luke chapter 19, Jesus says that his, his mission was to seek and to save the lost. It says the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That's his mission. But Luke actually uses that same phrase, the Son of Man came, another place in Luke, in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, and he, he finishes it not by saying to seek and save the lost. In Luke chapter 7, 34, he says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He came eating and drinking. So here we see Luke is telling us the mission of God, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. But how did Jesus do that? He tells us in another place, not just his mission, but his method was through eating and drinking. How many of you can get excited about eating and drinking? Come on, where are my people at? Come on. And I, I love that. I love that. It was through eating and drinking. It was through gathering with people who were far from God at the table. You see, one commentator on this passage said that Jesus actually, when it came to uh, reaching people, he used two different techniques. With those who were the wayward religious who knew God and had wandered from him, Jesus' method to address that was basically he'd call a crowd He'd gather a crowd. Maybe he would heal people and people would gather. And then he would get up and he would just preach, preach, preach. 
They call them to repentance. That was how he handled the people that were the, the religious. But when it came to people who were outside of the family of God, people that were born in the wrong family, people that, that, that had the wrong reputation, people that, that perhaps could have never been welcomed into that environment, Jesus did not preach at them. He invited them to the table. The, the, the modus operandi of Jesus' mission was to reach people that were far from him at the table. At the table. You see, we eat many times throughout the day, some of us more than others. But have you ever stopped to think about the spiritual significance of the table? Have you ever stopped to think about the, the culinary ministry of Jesus? Have you ever thought about how much of Jesus' life and ministry revolved around food? Yeah, I like it. That's uh, my Lord, right? But think for just a moment about how Jesus engaged with food. First of all, he was born and put in a trough, which was basically a, a food, uh, you know, a feed stall for animals. So he was put there from his very birth. His first miracle was a culinary miracle. He turned water into wine, right? Like the party was ending because they ran out of wine, and Jesus is like, bring me some water, let's get this party started, right? <laughs> How about the, fi the fish and loaves? Jesus had been teaching all day. People were hungry. He could have been like, you know, you don't need food, you need to fast. No, he, ate, he fed them. He took the fish and the loaves and he fed them. Have you ever thought about that miraculous catch of fish in Luke chapter 5? When Peter and the others had been fishing all night and they had caught nothing, and Jesus goes up to them and he says, hey guys, I want you to launch out again and this side, I want you to cast the net on the other side this time. And they're like, Jesus, we've been fishing all night. We are fishermen, you're a carpenter, we know what to do. Nevertheless, because you said that, we will obey. They cast their nets, and the nets are so full that they can't hardly even bring them in. Now, the Bible doesn't record this, but I have a feeling that what those guys were probably saying is, man, we are eating good tonight, right? I mean, if you've ever been fishing, that is the reward of fishing. We are going to eat good tonight. Think about it throughout Scripture. Again and again, we see Jesus around the topic of the table, around the issue of food. In fact, even one of his first lines after he's raised from the dead, he shows up to his disciples and he basically says, do you all have anything to eat? Apparently, rising from the dead will work up an appetite, right? But again and again, in fact, the, the book of Luke, one commentator says that the book of Luke contains over 50 references to Jesus and food. Over 50 references to Jesus and food. Another commentator, Robert Karras, a, a New Testament scholar, says this. In this book, the book of Luke, he says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Basically, Jesus' ministry is one progressive dinner. He's just going, I mean, that's like when you go on vacation somewhere. You, it's basically, you just go to a different place to eat, right? And you just travel, maybe just me, but that's what Jesus was doing. He was always eating with people. 
And that's why Jesus' first followers, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, one of the first things it says that the church did is that they gathered at the table. They broke bread. They had a meal. Jesus, even in his final words before his crucifixion, he instituted not a doctrine, although it is important, but he instituted a meal. He says the church is to gather around the table. And for 250 years following Jesus' ascension, the early church with no buildings, no social media, no celebrity pastors, no, none of the things that we think that maybe you need to grow a church they didn't have any of those things, yet the church exploded. How did it grow? It grew around the table. People in their homes, breaking bread, eating together, sharing the life of God together. Now, fast forward to 2019, post-Christian, secular, increasingly secular America. Most churches, excuse me, most churches, you would be hard-pressed to find a morsel of food in the whole church, Right? And, um, and, and oftentimes, regardless of how good we do church, the church is oftentimes, uh, or regardless of how good we do church, the reality is most people in our world are just not coming to church. Is, can we be real for a moment? Like, we can get laser lights, we can, the, you know, pastor, the pastor can parachute in, but the reality is, like, most people just aren't coming to church. Sundays, you know, are for brunch now, right? If they want spirituality, they're going to like goat yoga, right? <laughs> Did you know that's a thing, goat yoga? It's a thing. Look it up. It's yoga with a goat. And uh, so people are going, they're no longer coming to the church. They're looking for spirituality in all, uh, a vast variety of different places. And, and Here's what I want to ask you today. In our world today, could it be that God is calling us back to the table? Could it be that in this world where people are no longer interested, and in fact, statistics say that even 50% of those who profess to be followers of Jesus are not a part of a local church, could it be that we need to rediscover the value of the table? You see, the table is, is central to the mission of God. It's not a nice little thing. Eating together is not just a nice little thing that, you know, those in the church that have a spare night during the week should do. It, the, the table is central to the mission of God, central to the purpose of God. In fact, uh, this is what the, the Bible calls hospitality. And hospitality is... The, the root word is a compound word that is uh, phileo, I, th I think I have it in my notes, we'll put it up on the screen, phileo, um, xenos, phileo xenos, and it's a, a compound word that philos means brotherly love or friendship, and xenos means a foreigner or a stranger, so hospitality by its very nature is Building relationship with those that are not like you. Philo Xenos. Xenos is where we use or where we get the word xenophobia. It's the fear of people that are not like you. Hospitality, philo Xenos, is the opposite of that. It is 
loving and welcoming and reaching out to, making space for, bringing a seat to the table for those who are not like you. This is central to the mission of God. You see, the table shows us a few things that I think we need to understand if we're going to understand God's purpose. The first thing that the table shows us is that we all need to receive life. We all need to receive life. It's true physically. It's also true spiritually. You see, regardless of what degree you have, regardless of how much money you have in the bank, regardless of what kind of house that you live in or how many followers you have on social media, how many of you know if you don't eat, you don't live, right? You can say you're a self-made person, self-made woman, pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, but the reality is if you don't eat, you don't live. And eating or food at its most Basic level is actually receiving the life of another into my own. You you see, every time you sit down and eat, every time you receive the life of the food that nourishes you and strengthens you, in order for you to receive life, something else had to die. Vegans included. It may be a cow that died or it may be a cauliflower, okay? Okay. But something had to die for you to live. That's the reality. The same is true for all of humanity, that in order for us to live, something else has to die. And that's not only the condition physically, but that is the condition spiritually. The Bible says this, that man, every single one of us, is dead in our sins and trespasses apart from God. The, the, the wages of sin are death. Why is that? Because God is the source of life. And to be cut off from God through our own rebellion and our own disobedience, when you are separated from the source of, of life, the result is death. And the Bible says that when, that when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death spread to all because all have sinned. And so every single one of us in our own Nature, the Bible says that we are dead, that we have to receive life from outside of ourselves. And this is a picture of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came not to just get, give you some improvement. Jesus came to give you life. Jesus didn't come just to make life better. He came to give you new life. Every single one of us need life. And Jesus is giving life. That's what he says in John chapter 10, verse 10. The enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I've come that you may have life, and life to the full. That's the offer for every one of us. And every time we sit down at the table, we should remember that the life we have is a gift. That something had to die so that you could live. That Jesus has given his life. Some people in our, in our modern mindset, we can think, well, that's so brutal. Why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't, Jesus, couldn't God have just said, forget about it, right? No problem, sin, no big deal. But Jesus had to die. He had to give his life because in order for us to receive life, someone had to give their life. And Jesus gave his life. 
as I said last week, not just so that we could have life for eternity as a measure of time, not just a quantity of life, but a quality of life. That God wants to give us life and life to the fullest. That's what the psalmist is talking about. In Psalm 107 verse 9, it says, He satisfies the longing soul and He fills the hungry with good things. You know that feeling when you've just had a great meal? When you've gone to your favorite place, Hillstone, Prado, Arby's. I wasn't getting a response from those, so I'm going down the rung, the ladder. When you go to your favorite place and you have a meal and you're like, man, this is good. I am so satisfied. That's what Jesus has come to give to every single person. There is a longing for life within every person. There is a hunger because we all need life. The table reminds us that we need life outside of ourselves. The second thing I want you to see that the table reminds us of, and we're going to receive communion in just a few minutes, but the table also reminds us that we all have a longing for belonging. We all want to belong. You know, the, the funny thing is you go around the world and, and different cultures eat different food, but everybody eats together, right? I mean, wherever you're at, people tend to eat together. Have you ever gone to a restaurant by yourself? I have. It's a, let's just raise our hands. If you've gone to the restaurant by yourself, some of us, yeah, we all have. Anybody else, when you eat by yourself in a restaurant, you feel like, am I some sort of like art exhibit? I feel like this is like, I'm just sitting here and people are looking at me like I'm some live art thing, or you know? And uh, people want to eat with other people because there's not just a biological aspect to food, there's also a communal aspect. We don't just need to eat, we need to be with other people. We, we need to have a place of belonging, a place of connection with other people. Psychologists are recognizing this. Now, emphasizing the value of family dinner in the, in the hyper-busy, hyper-distracted, hyper-mobile culture Psychologists say, in fact, a recent study from Stanford University said this, that, that children that come to the dinner table multiple nights a week are less likely to get involved in drugs, alcohol, abuse, uh, that young adults who have been raised with a regular family mealtime are less likely to suffer from anxiety or depression or other emotional issues. Why? Because we're made to not just see food as a physical, biological thing. There's something about gathering with other people. There's something about being around the table. Why is that? Because we were made in the image of a relational God. You see, God made all of creation, but when he made you, when he made me, he said, let us make man in our image you were made in the image of a relational God, a communal God. And, and the table and sitting at the table is a reminder of the us-ness nature of God that we are called to reflect. That we're not called to live in isolation. I'll never remember, or I'll never forget the moment when I, the first day of ninth grade in high school, walking into the lunchroom going, who's going to let me sit with them? You know, anybody else know what I'm talking about? My brother, he was a year older than me. He was sitting with the cool table, and he just turned his face away. <laughs> What's up with that? 
But we, nobody wanted to just be by yourself. You wanted to be with other people because God made us for relationship. And the table is a picture of that inclusive, welcoming, loving, accepting nature of God. When we sit at the table, we're reflecting God's loving heart for humanity. That when we were outsiders, when we did not belong, when we didn't have a seat at the table, that God, through Jesus, made a way for us. He's brought us to his table, the Bible says. Mary Douglas, an anthropologist, secular anthropologist, in her article, Deciphering a Meal on the Significance of Meals in Culture, says this, that drinks are for strangers, acquaintances, and workmen, but meals are for family, close friends, and honored guests. The grand operator of the system is the line between intimacy and distance. What, she, what is she talking about? She's saying that food or meals is not just a, a physical, biological need. It's actually a social boundary marker of who's in and who's out, Right? So she's saying that you'll have drinks with people that you would not sit down for a meal with. It, it, it's a picture of belonging, a picture of acceptance. Rosaria Butterfield, who has written a, a phenomenal book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, was a number of years ago, she was not a follower of Jesus. She was a radical feminist lesbian professor at the University of Syracuse in New York, and uh, she wrote a, an editorial in a paper that basically was saying that Bible-believing followers of Jesus are the problem with the world today. And it was getting a lot of traction, and she talks about this in her book, that it was getting a lot of traction, but one person who reached out to her was not in agreement or not the typical person that she would think would reach out to her that would read her article it was a, a local pastor of a Presbyterian church. And when he reached out, his response wasn't angry or defensive. It was actually warm and kind and thoughtful and gracious. And he said, I, I read your editorial and I understand that you're working on this research project on followers of Jesus. And he said, I thought maybe I could be of help. If you're going to write about them, maybe you should meet one, right? So he said, why don't you do this. We, we, my wife and I, we'd love to have you over to our home for dinner. And, and he invited Rosaria to his home. And she tells in her book about how she came to the pastor's home. And they had, surprisingly, a really warm, thoughtful, engaging, compelling conversation. And at the end of the meal, he didn't say, why don't you come to our church on Sunday? He didn't say, if you were to die today, where would you go? He said, hey, what are you doing next, next week, this same night? Why don't you come back? And Rosaria tells a story about how every week for two years, she continued going back to the pastor's house, sitting and eating, having a meal where no question was off limits. And although there was, there was disagreements about perhaps moral issues or political issues, but they just enjoyed a meal together. She says that after two years, she determined to follow Jesus. 
And she said it wasn't because she was no longer interested in the lifestyle that she was living. She said it was because the attraction and the the beauty of Jesus was now more compelling than the lifestyle that she used to live. And today she's actually a Presbyterian pastor's wife in Durham, North Carolina. But she writes this in her book. She says, radically ordinary hospitality, making room at the table in our lives. And those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label and us and them. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radical hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of His kingdom. They open doors, seek out the the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Drop the mic, Rosaria. (laughs) Right? What a beautiful, beautiful expression. And in fact, I'd encourage you all to, to read her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, because that is the very heart of hospitality. That's the heart of God that reaches out to those, not just having meals with friends, although that is wonderful, but that's not hospitality, that's fellowship. Hospitality is is those that are not like us, but that we come together over the table. And when we sit together, we recognize and we demonstrate the inclusive, welcoming, loving nature of God. The third thing that I want you to see before we prepare to receive communion, the third thing is that we also are a part of a story. When we sit at the table, we remember that we're actually a part of a story bigger than us. You see, it's been said that you can live, for, you can live without food for three weeks. You can live without water for three days. You can live without oxygen for three minutes. But you can, live, you can only live without hope for three seconds. And although those numbers may not be right, the heart behind it or the, or the need that all of humanity has for hope is true. Every single one of us has a desire. We have this longing to be a part of something bigger than our current reality. And that's the message of the gospel, that regardless of where your life is today, that through Jesus Christ there is a hope for the future. That we have a wonderful hope that one day Jesus will return. And I don't know if you've read the end of the story, but it's actually not a laser light show. It's actually a meal. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 that there is a meal that is being prepared. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. That every person who is put their faith in Jesus, who has responded to the inclusive invitation of God to come to his table, will be welcomed at that table. There's a day that is coming that will be a day of celebration, a day of welcoming. That's the hope that we have. Every time we sit at the table, Jesus said it this way, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do it in remembrance of my death and resurrection, or you proclaim my death and resurrection until I come. So every time we sit at the table, and in particular when we receive the bread and the cup of communion, we are looking forward to the beautiful hope that we have 
that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus will return. I had a dream a couple of years ago, and um, I had this dream one night. Perhaps you've heard me share this story before, but in my dream, I was in Publix in Baldwin Park, which is where we do our grocery shopping, and it was just after Publix had closed, and they brought out this table similar to this, and they set up a table in the front of the grocery store, just between the cash registers and the, the grocery aisles. They set up a table just like this. They put a white tablecloth over it, and they put chairs up, table settings up, and I sat down at the table. And in my dream, a friend of mine who I had gone to college with, and he just kept going to school again and again and again. He went on for a PhD in New Testament studies, a Bible scholar. He sat down at the table with me. And then in the other chair at the table, uh, a guy that perhaps some of you are familiar with, his name's Daniel Kalinda. He sat at the table. Daniel leads a, a great global evangelistic ministry, reaching out to people who are far from God. He lives here in Orlando. And he sat down at the table. And I, I woke up from this dream, and I thought, what a weird dream. What a weird dream. That day, I went to a pastor's breakfast with a group of other pastors, and uh, they were talking about how to hear the voice of God. And, and honestly, I thought, you know what? I'm not sure that I hear the voice of God in the same way that you guys are talking about. I, I just don't get these sort of promptings and, you know, weird things like, wait a minute, I did have a dream last night. And I told them about my dream, and, and one of them said, that's a God dream. I said, what does it mean? He said, God is saying he wants to bring together the teacher and the evangelist in the public's fears, public sphere, in the public place. What does a teacher do? A teacher answers questions, right? A teacher gives knowledge and information. What does an evangelist do? An evangelist is rolling out the red carpet of God's invitation to lost humanity. And I recognized through that that God was not just wanting to bring those two together, but that there was significance to the table. That God was calling us to recognize the significance of the table in His mission. That the table is not just a nice thing that we do to fill our tummies. It's not even a thing that we just do with people who are like us to have a good time on a Friday evening. That the table is central to the mission of God. That every time we sit down, whether it's a gourmet meal or whether it's a simple meal of delivery pizza, that when we look across the table, that we are looking at a person who Jesus died for and that he is reaching out to, that we are demonstrating the inclusive welcome of God to all of humanity through the table. So here's what I want to say to you today. I want to ask you just to dream with me for a moment. What would it look like if we as a community began to reclaim the table as the mission of God in our world? What would it look like in the world where everybody's into brunch, but they're not into church? What would it look like if we began to say, you know what, why don't you just come, let's have a meal together. Let's sit down and, and eat together. What would it look like if we changed the posture of our tables from inclusive to inviting? And we welcome people who are not like us, who we don't necessarily feel comfortable with because Jesus has welcomed us. 
What if we started opening up our tables to outsiders and people who are far from God and people that have different political opinions or sexual uh, expressions or, or, or socio- socioeconomic status? What if we begin to welcome people to the table? What would that look like? Maybe it would look like bringing some hot dogs out to your kid's baseball game and just grilling up some hot dogs. Maybe it would look like organizing a chili cook-off in your neighborhood. Just get a little competition in there, right? Maybe it would look like on Saturday morning, instead of just having your coffee in your house, maybe it would look like pulling your table outside and sitting down and bringing some coffee and cake around the table and inviting your neighbors in. Maybe it would look like soup and bread on a chilly fall evening. Lord, please give us a chilly fall (laughs) evening. What would it look like to put the mission back around the table? Here's what I want you to see is that every one of us can do it because everyone has a table. Everyone can do the mission of God because everyone has a table. Now, I'd love to think that you're all organizing chili cook-offs. You're all taking hot dogs to the park. But the reality is that you got to walk before you can run. And so that's what we're going to do with Alpha. We're going to do a group dinner party. Actually, we're going to do an eight-week dinner party that for eight weeks, we as a church, because we love God and because He's welcomed us to the table, we're going to make room at the table for other people who are far from God, and we're going to invite them in, and we're not going to preach at them. There's a film that presents the truth of the gospel in such a beautiful way, but we're just going to love them. We're going to have conversations, and we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to change their lives forever. That's what Alpha is all about. Are you with me? Awesome. All right, why don't you stand up to your feet? Worship team, you can come back up. I want to ask you just to.